Welcome to In-House Legal Uncovered, a major Lindsay and Africa podcast exploring what it takes to make it in-house. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of In-House Legal Uncovered. My name is Michael Sachs, and I'm a partner at Major Lindsay in Africa and our in-house counsel recruiting group. My practice is mostly helping to conduct general counsel searches and other senior level in-house searches for all types of companies, from Fortune 100 companies to family-owned organizations. The theme of our podcast is candid and engaging conversations with leading individuals in the in-house legal counsel industry. Whether those people are general counsels, like our first set of guests, including today's guest, or other senior lawyers, or CHROs who frequently partner with the GC and also are responsible for the hiring of a general counsel. And I'm still working to convince a couple of my colleagues to join me on this podcast to tell some classic recruiting war stories. Let's go right to today's guest. I'm really excited to introduce him. I am speaking with Ed Siebold. Ed, welcome to the In-House Legal Uncovered podcast. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. I feel like I've really made it. I'm a podcast guest now. (laughs) Exactly. You made the big time now. You always wondered if you'd amount to something, Ed, but you have now. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Let me tell the audience just a little bit about you real quick. So Ed is a uh, chief legal officer, general counsel, and executive with 25-plus years of experience, gained from leading high-performing teams in a $19 billion publicly listed technology company, a Fortune 50 enterprise, and one of the world's largest globally integrated law firms. At Kindrell Holdings, Ed currently serves as the general counsel and corporate secretary, managing a worldwide team of over 300 lawyers and other professionals. As a founding member of the Kindrell senior leadership team reporting to the CEO, Ed has played a key role in creating the legal, compliance, and corporate and governance structure for the company. Before being selected as the general counsel of Kindrell, Ed was the vice president and assistant general counsel at IBM. He concurrently managed three significant legal functions with a combined team of over 70 in-house lawyers and professionals, along with outside counsel. As the chief legal officer for IBM's Watson Health Operating Division, Ed oversaw all aspects of the legal function worldwide, including transactions, healthcare regulatory issues, IP, international expansion, and data rights. And before I joined IBM, oh, I don't know, he also had an incredibly successful 20-plus year career at the worldwide firm of Jones Day, where I actually spent a summer as well back in the 1990s. We were colleagues for a very, very brief period of time. So, Ed, that's quite a career you've had so far over the years. And so let's let's start getting into it. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it and really looking forward to the chance to build on some of the great discussions that we've had um, with you and your colleagues over the years about the practice of law and how to build a fulfilling career. So really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, and I've known you for a few years now, and I always enjoy every time we speak. And so when I was coming up with guests, you were just sort of a natural selection. Um, you weren't the first guest, but you were right there at the, at, in the, in the, on the ground floor. Um, right. Let's just start. Let's just start with a super easy one. So I've told the audience a bit about your background, reading off of of what you had on LinkedIn. But where do you come from, and how did you kind of do you kind of get into this position? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, grew up in the Midwest, uh, and that's where we crossed paths briefly for a summertime uh, back in the day. Yes. But um, <clears throat> you know, had the opportunity to uh, to go to college in Cleveland, and then uh, University of Michigan Law School, which I also uh, share that experience with you. So that's yes. great. Uh, and then from there, uh, as you said, I uh, had a chance to clerk for an excellent federal judge on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then uh, uh, did a little bit of uh, private practice in Chicago with a different law firm. And then, uh, as you said, I was with Jones Day for quite a long time. Um, and as you know, kind of a major international law firm. But at there, I didn't really do a ton of international work, um, but had the chance to do that when I came to IBM in 2012. Um, and as I like to say, the uh, the I in IBM stands for international. Mm-hmm. And at uh, IBM, I started out on sort of the litigation side and uh, really fortunate in, in that litigation space to get a ton of international experience. Um, at the time, they were working on reforming their global pension uh, system and processes. And so as you might imagine, that spawned a ton of litigation uh, in the UK and in Spain um, among uh, among different uh, geographic locations. 
So that really gave me a window into kind of different views of employment relationships and, and got me started down that international path, I would say. We also had a lot of commercial and tax cases in Japan. Um, so that gave me a window into an international mindset uh, different than yeah, the European side. And at, at IBM, on the litigation side, I got a chance to build a global team to help support that international litigation. So got a flavor for thinking about, hmm, how do you build a diverse geographic team? Um, and so that was really, I would say, one of my first international opportunities and exposures. Um, so that was that was a really good start, really got my appetite wet for the, the international aspects. And then, as you alluded to, I, I had a chance to become the general counsel of our Watson Health division at nice. IBM. And uh, was great, both from a career perspective, um, because, again, a chance to be a, a general counsel of a division and also the startup, um, because that was one of the things that they had just um, started, just spun off. Uh, also an emphasis there on AI and other cutting edge technologies. But there was also an international aspect to, the, to that business, as you might imagine. Kind of the, um, and so I got a chance to see the international regulatory aspects of the healthcare business. And so also got to think about with our team, again, a very global team, how do we bring innovative products to market? Um, and how do you think about that? And how do you think about the differences in international regulatory regimes? You know? right. And so sometimes sometimes in that space, it can actually be better to bring something to market outside the US. So again, it was a great chance to kind of build on that international aspect. And then finally, um, but as you pointed out at the at, at the same time, and as my family likes to point out, wow, Dad, that was really smart. You had three jobs, but got paid for one. So, <laughs> uh, you know, experience is its own reward sometimes, as uh, as I like to say. Uh, and my final spot at IBM was in the, uh, the M&A space. And there, uh, again, from the international spot side, got to do um, quite a lot on the international regulatory side when it came to antitrust and approvals of technology transactions. And um, so when I started to combine kind of all three of those, I, I got experiences sort of across the, the business, but also across really the geographies. IBM, obviously, massive global footprint. And so <clears throat> that got me started, I would say, down the international pathway. And then I was really fortunate in 2020, 2021, when we spun off uh, the Kindrel business, which was the managed infrastructure services business. And so um, got to start really from the ground floor there, which for me was tremendous. Um, there were aspects of an established business um, because that business unit had been within IBM for a long time, but also a startup aspect. Um, so I got to go through all the aspects of essentially going public um, our, uh, we were listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It was really a cool career day to be up there uh, sure. helping ring the bell uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so really a, a very neat moment in, in, in my career for me. Um, as I said, you know, in one sense, a startup, but uh, it's a startup with 90,000 employees <laughs> spread right. over at least 60 countries. So again, yeah. kind of that global aspect and global teams yeah. Um, so that was that was great from my standpoint. And then, as I like to say about that experience, I was so, and still am sort of a general counsel on steroids uh, because of the spinoff aspect. You know, we started with some of the business lawyers who I knew well uh, from IBM, but then we also had to build out kind of the public company function aspects uh, that a, a internal business unit didn't have. So again, that was richly rewarding to help build that team, build it um, both domestically and internationally, and then had the opportunity to help orient a whole new board of directors um, coming on board. And again, a really diverse and international group of uh, directors too. So helping uh, build on my international and global experience. So that's a real quick or, or maybe not so quick uh, nutshell <laughs> of kind of how I got to uh, sort of where I am today. So, Ed, you took a lot of the answers already to some of the questions that I was going to ask you. I really want the theme of this podcast with you to be kind of in that global nature of what you do. 
because as I've gotten to know you over the last few years, I've really been impressed with how um, really all over the globe your teams are and how you cover that. And I really want to be able to ask some questions about what that's like to be a leader of a, of a department that has so many lawyers in so many different locations. But let's kind of take a step back for a second. So you're the leader of the Kindra Legal Department. What do you see as the responsibilities for the company? What do you think the, the senior business leaders think uh, that the legal department does under your watch? Sure. I think for me, it's a very broadly defined role, um, which I really like and really embrace. Um, you know, it's interesting, and 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 we've had some discussions about it. I think you might even have a post on this about, are you the chief legal officer or are you the general counsel? Um, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because all my colleagues uh, on our team are chiefs. They're the chief uh, officer of this or this or that. But I really like the general counsel uh, uh, title, if you will, because I think it's very descriptive. Um, so first, from the general side, I'm really a generalist. Um, our legal team embraces all phases of legal and beyond. So we've got compliance, privacy, and you know the full suite of legal team aspects. So. I'm also the corporate secretary, so we've got all the board and the board governance. And so that, from the general standpoint, I think is pretty descriptive. And then I like the council standpoint, too. Um, and our CEO jokes around sometimes, saying, hey, counselor, how are you doing? Um, but I feel like, you know, in a sense, it's that's a title to earn in a way. And so I'm really there to provide advice and counsel. Um, and from a counseling aspect, I think we have a really unique perspective because we can see across the entire business. Um, I'm really fortunate, um, as, as our discussion earlier suggested, to have experience in a whole bunch of different sectors. Um, I've seen what can go wrong and I can see and I've seen what can go right. Um, so I think I can really bring that to the counseling aspect. And it also gives me a chance to operate with empathy, um, to really be able to put myself in the shoes of our business teams and our business leaders uh, and to help counsel them along the way. And a big part of that for me is what I call being a risk calibrator. Uh, is it's not about saying no, but it's about saying yes, but we need to do it in this way or that way to, to measure and calibrate that risk. And then ultimately, it's about being a business problem solver. And I think that combines that, that role and those functions, the generalist and the counselor, to be the ultimate, hopefully, business problem solver for our business and our, for our senior team. So kind of broadly defined, that's how I uh, think of our role and how I think folks within the business and the business team look to us. So uh, we alluded to when I was giving a little bit of your background, but you know, how big is your current team? You know, maybe a brief summary of sort of uh, how many lawyers do you have on your team? Where are they located? Give us that sense of that uh, geographical breadth for your uh, for your current team. And if you sure. feel like you want to, you know, allude to anything that uh, related to your IBM experience as well, feel free. You don't have to kind of repeat and go through each one of them again. Yeah, no problem. Happy to do that. Um, and I'll really focus on kind of the present day, uh, our Kindrel team. Great. So we currently have uh, 350 members on, on our team and about 155 or so of those team members are uh, lawyers. Then we have another 75 to 80 contracts and negotiations professionals. And then finally, we have about 100 people on our security team. And the security team does both physical security, um, executive protection, and then also blends over into the cyberspace and in some ways helping some of our cyber teams. So about 350 people on our team, and we're broadly uh, geographically dispersed. Um, as I mentioned, we have operations in about 60 countries uh, right now around the world. And so about a third of our team uh, is based in the U.S. And so about and it, it breaks down roughly in each of those categories, whether it's lawyers or security or contracts professionals. And then the other two thirds of our team member uh, are outside the U.S. spread among those geographies with a particular concentration in uh, 10 or so countries where we do a significant amount of business. And then we also have um, lawyers in many of our strategic markets and principal markets outside those other 10. So that's a real um, kind of rough feel for how we're uh, how we operate and how we're uh, organized. 
so these countries you have these lawyers in is it uh you know presumably it's uh you know england uh, you have lawyers in china are there are you, are you pretty far you know i assume you have lawyers in latin america are there you must have them in all the continents except for uh except for antarctica or do you have one there too <laughs> <laughs> not yet but that's uh that's a great idea at least uh, yeah. it'd be great to have a uh, have a trip <laughs> but uh we we pretty much uh, have well we certainly have all those countries covered that you just talked about and uh, along with um, you know many sub uh, regions within countries and uh, also just um, other countries along the way too again largely tied to where the business is operating or um, where we might experience more risk uh, in proportionate to our business opportunities and things along those lines so it definitely. You know, we follow the sun and we follow the business, and um, that's yeah. that tends to be how we're organized. So, when you have you know teams that are this global in nature, what are some of the maybe challenges you face with your team when everything is so global? You can't see everyone every day. You know, even before COVID, you couldn't do that. Um, what are the benefits from having such a global team? What are some of the pitfalls? Um, what do you again when you go home, what do you think about when you have this practice that as you said you you just kind of gained over the last you know 10, 15 years? Yeah, in terms of challenges, you know, there are several, some that you might imagine. I you know, obviously there are time zone differences. And so trying to organize and calibrate calls and uh, different meetings and things like that sometimes can be a little challenging. And so you need just need to be cognizant of those differences. We try to spread the burden. Um, and so sometimes um, we'll have calls early in the morning or late at the evening, U.S. time to help our colleagues outside uh, the United States. So that's one. Another is, uh, and you alluded to it when you can't all be together, we've, we really need to work to create a sense of connection and a sense that decisions aren't being just dictated by some distant headquarters right. talking head, uh, you know, in the United States somewhere. And so those are a couple of the challenges that we face. Um, they're easily outweighed, I'd say, by the benefits um, of having such a global team. I mean, it really provides us with uh, an opportunity for tremendous number of u- unique perspectives. Um, for me personally, and I, I stole this phrase from one of my former uh, colleagues and former general counsels at IBM, but it's really been a chance to earn an international MBA uh, for me. Uh, in terms of just the business experience, the business opportunity, and the business lessons that I've learned along the way. And the other benefit is we've had a real opportunity to build a a representative senior leadership team. And part of that is designed to address one of the challenges that we touched on. And by having leaders outside of the United States, not only do we get uh, an international experience and perspective, but we also build that global cohesion and that sense of ownership that folks um, from outside the United States are directly participating in the decision-making, in the leadership. So we've been really fortunate in that regard um, that, as I said, the benefits far outweigh any challenges because of those great perspectives, um, the great and broader sense of community, and it gives us a chance to build inclusion. Um, building on some uh, IDE themes and and helps to really define what does inclusion mean. So, all in all, just tremendous opportunities. Yes, you know there are a couple of challenges along the way, but well worth it. And you know I, I feel richly rewarded every day by having such a global opportunity and a global team. I can imagine that you'd probably have to set up calls over you know 20 hours of the day, but probably. If you've done this long enough, you probably know a way to kind of do that well and doesn't be have that much of an impact given all of the other incredible positives from having people all around the globes, all around the globe. Yeah, exactly. You get uh, pretty uh, fluent on time zones and finding some sweet spots uh, along the way. Yeah. Now, when you're and we, we didn't list some of the countries, but I'd be curious, you know, some of the places that are more that are lesser well known than you know China, UK, et cetera. But like when you're making these hiring decisions in some of these places, um, you know, how are you able to kind of assess these candidates if um, as well, you know, given their backgrounds, if there are these locations that may not be as well kind of known to you as sort of obviously the U.S., even the U.K. or even China. 
Um, is it is it just developed through experience? Do you have other people that are kind of helping you kind of assess them on paper and make sure they can handle the role? Or is it kind of easier even than I than I think to kind of go through that process? <laughs> um, I would say, except for the last part about easy, uh, yeah. I would say all of the above and then some, right? Yeah. I mean, w- you know, one benefit that we have is w- we have the opportunity to consult with experts like you and, and your team at Major Lindsay on, hey, what are you seeing in these markets? What should we think about, even if you don't know a particular candidate, right? So we get a flavor from that. We can also get recommendations from our outside law firms. Um, and from time to time, we'll actually have secundees from a law firm in a particular uh, country or region work with us for a period of time. So we we get it sort of a test drive, if you will. They get to test us and we get to test them. And then oftentimes they'll end up um, coming to work for us. So that's been a good sort of testing ground. Sometimes we can do that with temporary attorneys as well. And then finally, um, you know, we have strong leaders, legal leaders in our regions outside of the United States. So ultimately, like many of our decisions, we rely heavily on our senior leadership for their expertise, their judgment, and their assessment of these candidates. And we're very, very fortunate in that respect uh, because a number of those leaders uh, have been there, done that before many, many times. So we're extremely fortunate to have such a talented team outside the U.S. that can really help that. And then part of what we try to do is build kind of a global perspective on assessing folks too, so that we can try to develop a a universal standard so people understand a good lawyer in the U.S. has got a lot of the same characteristics as a good lawyer in India or China or Australia. So we try to really do that in within our department when we evaluate and assess candidates to uh, on, on an ongoing basis. So, you know, we do these uh, general counsel searches and a lot of times, you know, we're f- trying to list the things that they want to see in a candidate. And sometimes they'll say, oh, I want to know that they they know international. People can't see me, but I'm putting quote marks up. You know, they know international. <laughs> They've got, you know, global know-how, you know, and of course we do it and we get the candidates. But I always wonder in the back of my mind, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to know international? Obviously, I can guess part of that and you can make an educated guess in terms of what it means. But for you, you know, truly you're a lawyer who I do do think, quote unquote, knows international. What exactly does that mean? How do you assess your skills on that on that stage? How do you how would you characterize it to uh, to just to somebody in another company? Yeah. And, and, you know, I was chuckling and and using some similar air quotes uh, because I used to chuckle in (laughs) law school and people said that they wanted to do international law. Right. Right. Oh, wow. (laughs) What exactly does that mean? Does that mean you're going to be at the UN and, right. uh, you know, advising on things or or whatever else? And, and frankly, I think it's somewhat challenging in private practice uh, to actually sort of do international yes. law. But I think it's actually more achievable uh, on the in-house side of things, particularly wearing that generalist hat that I was just describing, because I, I am by no means the expert in uh Chinese law or Turkish law or uh, the law of uh, many countries outside the U.S. Some might not even say in the U.S. So, um, you know, it's that global uh, or international know-how to me, first of all, means understanding how to operate a business around the globe. Um, So it's understanding different cultural and business norms. Um, and, and that's built up over time and through experience. It's understanding different legal and compliance regimes and how they might be similar and how they might differ around the world. Um, it's different attitudes towards the employment relationship. As I mentioned, those pension cases gave me a window into, you know, in the United States, for the most part, we still have an employment at will relationship. But in many other countries, that's not the case. Um, And in some countries, it's seen more as kind of employment for life. And so how do you adjust to that? And how do you um, do that? And as well, it's different approaches to risk. So I think when we're talking about that or looking at that, um, I I think about that and I look for people that can be great translators, Um, not necessarily of language, uh, although that's always helpful, but translating the differences 
um, into sim either similarities or an understanding of how that might translate back to, let's say, the U.S. system or at least the system that many of our executives might be um, familiar with. So I really try hard personally and with others to be that translator. And so that's part of it um, from my standpoint. And then I would say from experience, it's, you know, how do you bring together, knit together these geographically dispersed teams to create this sense of cohesion, this sense of ownership? Um, so from my standpoint, I think that's part of my international experience, along with gaining an understanding of different cultural and business norms, as I was talking about. So do you think when you you listed, I can't remember the exact number, but, you know, well over 100, 200 people who are not in the U.S. who are on your team right now. Do you think it's important to either A, have physically traveled to the, some of these countries where you have team members? Again, we haven't listed, you know, Japan, I'm guessing, Brazil, all these different places around the globe. Do you think it's important to have met them in person at some point? How do you... How important is this really to you? And then how has that maybe changed over the last three years where, you know, particularly for a while, physical travel was really was really challenging? Yeah, I think it's critically important um, it, for building individual relationships and then for the teams themselves. So from my standpoint, it's critically important. And the, the nice thing is it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, every day, every year. It's it's being there and building that initial relationship um, with folks. I think it helps to really build a sense of trust and community. Um, and for me, it's also helping to gauge whether our department, um, whether our department messages and our corporate messages are gaining traction outside the, what can be sometimes the bubble of corporate headquarters. So I found it to be just critically important um, to build the relationship. And then for our teams, for them to be able to come together, I think is critically important, even within a, a region itself. As you alluded to, COVID has definitely uh, created a sense of a degree of separation. So getting teams back together again after COVID, and even beyond that, some of our teams have been separated, I'll say by budget, <laughs> uh, yeah. for even longer. And you realize, especially in the corporate world, there is a real emphasis on, you know, watching travel expenses and things like that. But I, I, it, I think, is inc money incredibly well spent um, to be able to get your teams together and then to be there um, together with them. And we really tried, especially as, as a spinoff in our first year, to hold sessions for our teams in our three uh, major regions in Europe, in Asia, and in Latin America, because of all those reasons I talked about and yeah. the newness of, uh, of our teams being together. So to me, short answer is, I think it's critically important. So how, how many days are you, you know, approximately, you know, now that COVID is, you know, whatever you want to call it, a, a bit in the rearview mirror? I mean, how many days approximately are you traveling internationally? Is there is there a number? And is and by the way, is that travel when we listed the benefits of the pitfalls? Is that a that a positive of the role or is it is, is it at all a <laughs> negative? And I'm sure there's a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, of course, like uh, like anything, sometimes, you know, 17 hours on an airplane is hard to describe as uh, as that part as uh, <laughs> as being a great benefit. But yeah. what I've always found, again, that it's it's just well worth it. Um, it really is from that standpoint. So I'm not sure I have a, a calculus on how many days, but, you know, we recently came back from India where we had our first um, board trip outside the United States. And again, to the point that we were talking about, just incredibly valuable to, to meet members of our legal team and our compliance and security team on the ground, on their home turf, uh, and to have them be those translators that we were talking about to explain the differences in, in culture or in legal systems and things like that. So um, I don't have a, a, a true calculator on it, but you know, really any opportunity that I have to get out and, and meet our teams, whether it's the legal team 
or the business teams is just well worth it from my is standpoint. It, is, it, is it like more than once a month or is it yeah, just? Yeah, I would say de- definitely more than once a month, um, yeah. either through business meetings or board activities or just yeah. general uh, activities along those lines. Again, and I think some of that will settle down over time as as we get to know each other a little bit more and we're less of a sure. spinoff and more established. But right now, I, I would say uh, I think that's the case. Well, and, and you mentioned it to me when we were preparing for this, that, of course, a reminder that this has been occurred during the COVID age as well. So it's not like I'm sure in those initial interactions, I'm guessing nobody was in person or very few people. And so now you've got to cement those relationships, whereas maybe if it had spin and gone through in 2017 or 2018, it might have been a little bit different for, for a variety of reasons. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's essentially making up for lost time in some ways and uh, and establishing those relationships early on uh, that we didn't get a chance to because of exactly what you were talking about with COVID and other challenges. So then you have, so you have a company, let's say in the U.S., you know, that has all of their senior executives kind of in one location, or maybe they're located, you know, a couple hundred miles away at another site, but you probably have some of the top um, officers of the company, the most senior executives who are in regions outside the U.S. Your lawyer is going to bond with that. If you have a lawyer in Switzerland, that lawyer is going to be able to build relationship based on being there, proximity, culture, common language, et cetera. How do you um, build those relationships with these top business leaders of the company who are you know, thousands of miles away and you might only see um, you know, a couple times a year, if that, and you've got a lawyer there every day who can kind of kind of build that relationship daily based on those factors. What do you, what, how, do you, how do you kind of philosophically view that? Sure. And some of it is really a, a combination and builds on some of the things that we talked about. So I think, you know, there is no substitute for physical presence and physical meetings. So if I have the opportunity to do that, either by traveling to that country uh, where our executive is is present or if the executive is going to be in the United States for meetings, um, I, I try to make that connection in person wherever I can. Some of it, of course, uh, you have to do virtually. And and that's fine, too. And I think we can build up some credibility that way. One of the things that I've had the opportunity to do is help to coach some of our uh, senior executives in terms of presentations, either to our senior executive team and our CEO uh, or to our board. Uh, in part, my role as corporate secretary, uh, I do a lot of our prep work and, and getting ready. So I met and as you might imagine, in kind of early phases of a company, our board is very curious and keen to meet um, some of the senior leaders outside the United States. So we often bring our senior leaders in to present to the board. So I have an opportunity to meet them, to help them, and hopefully build that uh, relationship of trust and confidence that we talked about. And finally, as you said, um, yes, indeed, we do have our legal leaders in those countries and regions. And I look to them to establish our presence and essentially our legal brand. Um, And they've done a great job with that. And they build those relationships of trust and confidence. And fortunately, I think, you know, we have that symbiotic relationship and they can do a lot of um, what I would do if I were there um, physically. So all in all, it, it seems to have worked pretty well. Yeah. So, and you uh, mentioned this, I think, right at the beginning, as we were talking about kind of um, kind of the department as a whole, you're, I'm sure Kindrel's no different than, you know, hundreds and thousands of companies who are trying to meet a DEI commitment. It's very important to the company, very important to the legal department. Does the fact that the company, that the, does the fact that the company is so global help that effort? Are there any ways in which it ever impairs it at all? Or is it all sort of like a positive in terms of the global nature, helping the company achieve those commitments or the commitments even more because they have the opportunity to be able to hire people in all different, you know, uh, realms of the of the world? Yeah, I think it's it's all a positive. Um, And from the legal department standpoint, you know, we want to be a model for the entire company when it comes to DE&I. And so um, we really focused on the inclusion aspect. We want to celebrate our diversity and differences. And it's interesting globally because diversity means different things around the globe. Um, We have sort of one notion of it in the United States, and it tends to focus on one aspect. But in other countries that might have more, let's say, homogeneous population in one way, it has a difference. Uh, And and so we've had to adopt and think about that um, together. 
But really what we've focused on is drawing ourselves together in that sense of community through those inclusion principles. So those are kind of the basic fundamentals that we work off of. To your point about the global nature, what I've found really helpful is we've tried to create the highest common denominator. So we've tried to drive for a global standard, of course, recognizing cultural differences, but saying, hey, look, we're going to push for the highest standard that is universal across our company. Um, so that's been gratifying, I think, to see and to, to work some changes, maybe in attitudes uh, in different places uh, around the world, driving from those um, highest common denominator principles. And it's really been gratifying for me in the general counsel role, because I've been in a position, I think, to help to promote diversity throughout the organization. For example, I, I talked about our very diverse board, um, and they're obviously keenly interested in diversity within the company. So one of the things that we've been particularly conscious about is in board presentations, are we presenting a diverse team and diverse perspectives? Um, that really helps to focus the business's attention, as you might yeah. imagine, uh, on, hey, we really mean this. Uh, and so it's been a nice um, opportunity, a nice forum uh, to be able to advance that through that general counsel, corporate secretary role. So that all in all is kind of our approach that we've taken. And so, um, you know, again, <laughs> global, right? We talked about it as sort of just a, a, a catch-all term. Um, what do you see in sort of the future? Do you think that the breadth of your teams is going to even get um, larger as time goes on? Do you think the breadth of your teams might shrink? Um, you know, we, we we hear the stories out there about what's going on in the Asia Pacific and China and whether or not companies are pulling back or there's going to be sort of a different way of doing business in the future. Is there any kind of prediction or any kind of reading of the tea leaves you can make in terms of if you're still in this role five years from now, do you think the breadth will be the same, larger, smaller, uh, or the, uh, the, this is totally fair if you say it's hard to say. <laughs> uh, you know, my crystal ball is, uh, is often cloudy, but uh, I'm willing yeah. to take a shot at it. Yeah, um, please. I think it's, I, I think it's going to be more global um, in, in, and more breadth and depth in, in our teams outside the United States. And I think going back to some of the principles that we talked about that the, the legal and contracts teams, you know, both follow the sun and follow the business. And business growth is going to be outside the U.S. in many ways. Um, as you talked about with China, maybe there'll be cutbacks there, but it's a very, still very attractive market because it's so large. And so yeah. how do you operate there if you're going to operate there um, requires even more complexity uh, than before. And I think, um, and, and part of the reason why we were just in India not too long ago is, I mean, India is just booming and on the verge of really catching China, both in population and then perhaps ultimately in terms of economics and economic growth. So I think that because the legal and compliance functions tend to react to business and business growth, we'll tend to follow that. And I think you'll see even more um, growth outside the United States in that sense. I also think um, there's opportunity for lower cost provision of legal services outside the US. Um, as all of us are probably too keenly aware, uh, the United States has probably the highest cost of providing legal services in the world. Um, and while that might be great for the law firms, uh, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily great for the companies. So. I think you're likely to see uh, maybe regional hubs or other things like that where um, perhaps in India or lower cost centers in Europe, um, you might be able to hub some lawyers who can do a set of services that are kind of universal across companies or don't are not that dependent on the particular law of one country or another. Um, so I think you'll see some of that, and I think you'll see perhaps more regional than individual countries, um, because it can be expensive to have lawyers in each individual country. Um, and so I think there'll be some opportunity for a regional approach. But the kind of countervailing aspect of that, because every time I turn around and think about that, um, you know, you look to Europe, and the challenge in Europe is, despite 
wanting to have a common market, the earlier term, or a European Union, um, you really don't quite see it yet when it comes to legal systems, uh, approaches to risk. And, you know, part of the challenge in, frankly, in, in universalizing lawyers is just different languages um, that businesses operated in in, uh, in the European countries. So that'll be maybe a countervailing weight against the regional approach. But I think all in all, that growth outside the United States is going to continue for all the reasons that that we just talked about. So um, when you were going through your background, you gave a little bit of sense of how you got from there to here. But if you were talking to a young lawyer, whether it's somebody who, well, either a young law school, uh, uh, you know, law school classmate or a, a third or fourth year associate, and they really want to have a career that was on the international stage and that was a priority for them. What advice would you give them early on in their career? How can they kind of get this type of experience? What would you recommend to them? Um, anything you would say if somebody asked you that? I'm sure people have asked you that over time. So what would you say to get that experience? Sure. Um, I think. You know, and, and some of this will, will, will sound a little trite, so I'll, I'll try to make it more concrete. But I, I think you've got to be really nimble and open to new opportunities. Um, as I said, if you had asked me when I graduated from law school, um, or even if you had asked me, you know, 20 years ago, uh, I, I never necessarily would have thought that I would be in the international space. So I think you've got to look for the opportunities and kind of create them. I think you have to be willing sometimes to trade off a little bit too. Um, and I'll, I'll give an example of that. And, and this is by no means a, a reflection on any particular area of the law. Um, but let's say, um, you know, you might not want to be a compliance lawyer, let's say, for the rest of your life. But that can be a tremendous way to gain international experience and expertise because you see the business across uh, the geographies. You see the risks, you see the trade offs, you see how transactions get done internationally. And in many companies, that's where kind of the investment of dollars is right now. So that would be one thing that I would think about. The other, and obviously you don't always have the chance to do this. Um, as I said in the first uh, point, sometimes you take your opportunities where you come. But you know, if, if you're thinking about in-house, I'd look for a company if I had the choice that had either an existing global footprint or one that's really willing and is on the verge of pushing out and expanding internationally where you could be on the ground floor to help kind of form, form it. Um, I think about mentors that have international and global experience that can kind of teach you and advise you. And I, I, ultimately I'd be willing to take some risks. Um, you know, you don't have to know everything about a new job. You might not know a lot about it. You might not know a lot about international. Um, it, as I like to say, if I can do it, you can do it. Um, <laughs> so I think it's, you know, it's that openness and just thinking about uh, different opportunities and different ways to to do things along the way. So, Ed, you're uh, you're a public company general counsel. You have this incredible global team. You're uh, you're in the height of all your abilities and your powers. I'm sure you have incredibly busy days. How do you want to grow as a leader? What's the what's the growth opportunity for you? How do you uh, if somebody asked you that, how would you how, what, what do you want to see? Sure. For me, I think it's continuing to expand beyond some of the traditional notions of of legal to keep working as uh, the business problem solver. So that would be one part of it. And certainly continuing to gain this global experience and exposure that's been so valuable. Uh, I can you know, I'll have further opportunities to do that. And I really look forward to that. Um, part of it is that seat at the table, being part of the senior business leadership team. And I really look forward to contributing to the business as a whole across kind of across not only cultures, but across different business units and, and stepping outside and being more than just a lawyer, quote unquote, or a, a lawyer broadly defined, I think is the way to go. So I'm looking forward to being a, a bridge builder in that counselor role. Um, helping to see the gaps and fill them in, drawing, I think, on some of our powers, as you alluded uh, to, as lawyers, I think mm -hmm. we have a, a great set of analytical skills. We have the real ability, because of our training, to be objective. And finally, I think we have that ability to be empathetic, to see things from many, many different angles, putting ourselves in the shoes of different businesses and business leaders. So 
I look forward to building on all of those in that global in that global space. So if you don't mind me asking, you've you've had this global career, um, which sounds so exciting to probably many people in terms of it. But what is that? What is that global nature meant for you personally? Um, I, I'm sure you have a lot of frequent flyer miles, so I'm sure that that is not a problem whatsoever. They probably know you by 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 first name. They call you Ed. They probably know you. But <laughs> what is it meant for you? You know, big big picture. Yeah, I mean, it's been a tremendous uh, reward, and it's meant a tremendous amount to me. In in fact, it's among the most rewarding aspects of my career. Maybe in part because it wasn't planned for at least from the beginning. Um, as I said, and I'm, I'm borrowing one of my former mentors or, or present mentor, but former colleagues expression, you know, I've had a chance to, to gain or at least work on an international MBA. It's broadened my perspectives um, and done just so many different things in terms of um, learning and teaching and opening me up to opportunities that I never would have thought about. And you know, very few negatives, uh, a couple of late nights adapting to other time zones. But um, even that, I would say, has been richly rewarding. We had a chance recently to help our team in India prepare for a board meeting. And some of that uh, required a little 2 a.m. Uh, New York time uh, discussions. But when you saw the just tremendous pride and success uh, that folks had when they were presenting to our board, uh, a little less sleep was well worth it for the benefits of seeing our global, very diverse global team just respond and and present tremendously to our board and and present just a great impression of our company. So uh, it I, I can't say enough about it from the career and personal standpoint in terms of rewards that um, were never expected when I first started out. Yeah. Maybe if we end, end things on sort of a couple of positive notes. I mean, I, um, is there a uh, experience you'd say over whether during your IBM days or your Kindle days on the global stage that you kind of stands out as like, wow, I'm so glad I, I got a chance to do this. Maybe it was a location that had nothing to do with the business, but you were there for something or maybe it was directly related to the business. Just what stands out you might think about during your uh, your retirement years, which I'm sure are a long time away from now. Uh, I hope so. I got to keep performing to keep, uh, keep probably that, some days. Uh, yeah. Probably some days you wonder if they're sooner rather than later. But yeah, I, you seem <laughs> like a very young man still with a lot of energy. <laughs> well, I do appreciate that. Um, I, you know, I've touched on it several times, and maybe because it's most recent. But I, I think even if I were to put it in the whole spectrum, it, it would be right up there. And that was our recent trip uh, that we took with our board of directors to India. Uh, I had never been to India before, obviously very curious about what was going on, but um, just had so many opportunities when we were in India, both from a, a career standpoint and a personal standpoint. Um, for example, we met with um, several very high-ranking government ministers in India and had a chance to dialogue with them about their country and our company. Um, again, if, if you had told me back in law school that I would be uh, <laughs> engaging, I guess, in a little bit of international diplomacy, um, I never would have anticipated that. So that was uh, richly rewarding. Also, as I said, just seeing the different business teams respond and present and just the sense of enthusiasm and excitement that folks bring to their daily jobs and really their daily lives. Um, and then for me, culturally, it was just really eye-opening to see how do uh, so many people, especially when you see the traffic and the chaos sometimes in, uh, in New Delhi, you know, how does that all come together? And I think folks in India really are on the cusp of, um, you know, taking the country into a new level. Um, and it's exciting to see that. It's exciting to see that from a technological perspective. It's also exciting in, in India to see um, the female population really start to blossom. Um, and I think folks in India are really starting to appreciate more and more the contributions that women can bring uh, to the table in the business world. And we've seen that in our own company. So all in all, I, I would have to say that trip to India is really a hallmark for me in, in my career.
Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to hear about. Well, let's finish with getting a little closer to home. You and I both went to Michigan for law school. I figured we have to end with a little sports talk. Are you excited about the next season before this uh, f- before the next football season? Because when this airs, the, we'll already know what happened with the basketball team, good or bad. But football season, how excited are you? Oh, very exciting. Uh, you know, of course, the, the big controversy is, uh, you know, Harbaugh, will he or won't he? And uh, it seems like at least for this year, uh, he, he's going to stay. So that's uh, that's good news. He was busy, I guess, a month or so ago, you know, out there removing trees in the streets of Ann Arbor. So um, hopefully that uh, continues to signal his commitment. And I think he's he's thinking a, a little bit more about opening it up on offense while still uh, playing that uh, pounded out football. So to me, that's really the next step in the evolution. Can can they compete with those speedier, uh, wide open teams, uh, whether it's uh, in the SEC or or elsewhere? So I'm really yeah. excited for next season. I'm I'm hoping that they can take that next step, maybe adapt a little bit more uh, while maintaining their, you know, true selves, of course. But uh, it, it'll be exciting. And I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to that season and hopefully some continued success. Yeah, I I um I feel the same way. I think when you look at the recruiting like rankings, I don't look at this very often, but probably like once a year and you look at them. And unfortunately, Michigan's never one of those top 10 teams. They're always in that 10 to 20. And so you kind of wonder at the end of the year, does that catch up with them when they play these big games? They just don't have some of the the horses that some of these other teams do, but they're really well coached and, you know, they're they're motivated and they're excited and they have great athletes and things like that. But I do kind of worry sometimes there's a bit of a cap. I mean, you can be the fourth best team in the in the country or the eighth or 10th team, but being that first or second, that Georgia or Alabama, I do worry that the recruiting at a certain point just kind of catches up with them to be that literally top team in the country. But I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and maybe that cycles us all back to the end, uh, right? It's all about recruiting and it's all about talent. So uh, <laughs> that's probably uh, probably a good place to uh, both begin and end in a lot of ways, because that's what it comes down to is uh, it's about talent and team and bringing it all together. Yeah, that's great. Eddie, you're natural at this. We could we could do this all the time. Great way to close the podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. As always, obviously great to speak with you. You had terrific insights, and I hope you uh, you had a good time talking about these topics as well. Excellent. Yep, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's it's great to talk about these issues, and appreciate the uh, the help and the opportunity to uh, collect my thoughts on it. Well, that will do it for this episode. We'd love to get your feedback on these podcasts. Feel free to email me at msachs, mlaglobal.com. That's M-S-A-C-H-S at mlaglobal.com. And tell me what you liked and what you didn't like and any suggestions for future topic of episodes. Uh, In the meantime, our current plan is to roll out one of these podcast episodes about once a month. So be on the lookout for new episodes all year as they become available. So long, everyone. Thank you for listening to In-House Legal Uncovered. Join us next time as we dig into another topic that will better help you navigate your in-house legal career.